Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. sentence up and you go saha viryam karavavahai so if you split it up that's how you pronounce it saha viryam karavavahai but when you put it together it's not fluid to go so you take your tongue and you push it up towards the roof of your mouth so instead of viryam ka it's viryam ka because then your tongue's in the position to make the k sound. So, so listen to the difference. So instead of viryam, it's viryangharavavahai. Unless you split it up. Should we try that again? From the top. Always want to say that. <laughs> Sahana Vavatu Sahana Vavatu Sahanao Bhunaktu Sahanao Bhunaktu Saha Viryang Haravavahai Saha Viryang Haravavahai Huh? That wasn't it. So it's not Mmm Viryam It's Viryang Haravavahai and it's not long. It's just Viryankara Viryankara. Okay? Ready? From the top. 
Sahana Bhavatu Sahana Bhavatu Sahana Bhunaktu Sahana Bhunaktu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvi Tejasvi Navaditamastu Navaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Good afternoon. You can be a tiny bit closer. It's okay. There's like this neutral zone that forms here. So I'd like to begin the first part of our afternoon talking a little bit about the relationship between uh, renunciation in meditation practice and action in the world. Because uh, the theme of this week, as I've mentioned, is renunciation and relationship. But I wanted to start more historical talk about the development of this idea uh, and way of practice over time. Um, in, in ancient India, the way action was thought about was in terms of karma. I think most of you are familiar with the term karma. Um, it comes from the root uh, kur, which means to create. It's actually where you get the English derivative of creativity or create. Um, and it's important to keep in mind the cultural context of where karma comes from, which is that ancient India was a highly stratified society. Um, the classes didn't penetrate each other at all. And I think it's hard for us to get our minds around this, because most of us, our vision of ancient India was love and light and peace. But actually, it was a culture with a tremendous amount of fear. And so they were always looking for ways to organize their cosmology and their society. And it was organized in a very rigid way that was considered part of how nature was built. Just like a human body has a head at the top, and arms, and a torso, and legs with feet at the bottom, that's also how culture should be designed. That there was, you know, the smartest elite at the top, 
and it went down until you ended up with the feet, which is the dirtiest part of the body. Um, so there were four classes, which I won't get into all the details, but there were four classes. And then there was one class that was so below the other four classes that later became known as the untouchables. Um, it was not possible to get from one class to another class. We call it caste system, but the word caste is actually Portuguese, and it doesn't show up in India until the Portuguese invade Goa. Um, so the word caste is actually a Portuguese term. Um, but there were these classes, and it was impossible to make a move from one class into another class. Okay, you couldn't marry, a, a, a merchant could not just go marry into a Brahmin class. It was not possible. That's how rigid things were. And because of that, the only way that you can get from one class to another class would be reincarnation. Okay? So that means you have to perform certain duties, which were called samskaras, in your life, which was your karma, um, in order to get reincarnated into a better class. And who controlled all of those rituals? It was the Brahmin class, which were men, and pretty much everybody else, including women, were illiterate. And the best hope you could get as a woman was to be reborn as a man. A woman was pretty much a slave okay, in ancient India, even though we have all kinds of other ideas that you know, women were not. But um, in terms of the structure of society, you didn't have any mobility as a woman. You had duty. Um, we like to idealize texts like the Bhagavad Gita, where it says things like, you should do, how does it go? You should do your duty. What, what's the line again? Come on, everybody should know this. <laughs> <laughs> Better to do yeah. your own, your own duty so-so. No, your own duty well, yeah. than to do another's so-so. And we all interpret that in a kind of Western way which is like, we really should do what we love, <laughs> rather than, you know, what someone else's story for us is. But actually, that's not what it meant. What it meant is, you're a warrior, Arjuna, so you have to fulfill your karma, your duty as a warrior. We don't appreciate that there isn't another option. <laughs> you see? Yeah. Um... One of the ways that um, you could guarantee a better reincarnation was by performing certain sacrificial rituals, uh, mostly known as a fire ceremony, uh, in households. And actually, if you go to Indian temples now, probably even in Hindu temples in Denmark, there are always fires going, um, a fire that gets passed down through the family. Traditionally, there would have been three fires. Uh, going in every household, which I think is actually a beautiful thing to do. Imagine if you had a fire in your home that you always kept going, even just a small fire, and then your kids continue that fire, and then their kids 
take that fire. I don't know how you move on airplanes and things like that. <laughs> you continue the fire. Um, what happens when you have a highly stratified, rigid society? What happens? Anarchy. What do you get? Yeah. You get Christiania. dropouts. <laughs> yeah, you get Christiania. <laughs> right? You get dropouts. You get people who say, there's no way, I don't need a Brahmin man to tell me how my reincarnation is going to work. Okay? And people started dropping out and going into the forests. Okay? And they would go to the forests or they would go to the cities because this is the time in human culture where the first cities were being created in the Gangetic Plain because there was a surplus of agriculture and it was the first time there was enough leisure time that cities became a, a source of creativity in the culture. So people were going to cities, they were going to forests and they started talking with each other about things like reincarnation, what it means to live a good life, how the universe was created, what would happen after you die. And these teachings became known as the Upanishads. And actually the first Upanishads were called the forest Upanishads. The conversations that happened when people sat down together in the forest. One of the most interesting things about the Upanishads that scholars are talking about these days that has been not so well known is that in the sects that develop in those forests, many of the spiritual teachers were women, which is really interesting. So a new kind of culture was being created, and research also is showing that where those first uh, uh, communities of forest-dwelling renunciates lived is the same area where the Buddha was born. <clears throat> so the Buddha was born into this culture and one of the Buddha's great gifts I'm skipping a little bit of history here but one of the Buddha's great gifts was to take the way the Brahmins were teaching their teachings and then take the way the teachings were happening within the Upanishadic culture and mix them okay because the Buddha felt that it was wrong to create a, a society where there was so much oppression based on such heavy belief systems. And at the same time, he also criticized dropping out. Okay? So, for example, one of the things he had his monks and nuns do, oh, he taught women and men equally which I think is hard to appreciate how radical that is. But one of the things that he did was he made them uh, wear robes and shave their head so that you couldn't tell what gender they were and what socioeconomic bracket they came from. Which is a beautiful teaching, I think, in and of itself. And... Um, he also wanted them to support themselves by alms. So they would be given a bowl, and they had to go beg for their food. And their 
when, when you read the old Buddhist teachings, they're called monks. But the word that's translated, the word where they get monk from a Pali word called bhikkhu, which literally means a beggar. Which is somebody who goes out into the street and relies on the culture in order to get their daily food. And this was a key social piece of the Buddha's teaching, which is that you can't drop out. You have to rely on society for your support, and them supporting you is part of the circular movement of you supporting the culture. You see? So he did this really interesting move in his community, which is to make people reliant on the culture. And for those of you who have maybe done some of the pilgrimages to Buddhist sites in India, what's interesting is that all of the places where the Buddha taught were within a few kilometers from a major city center. So the idea that we have sometimes of people becoming spiritual and dropping out was not the way that the Buddha taught. How is this related to karma? Um, good question. Um, the Buddha then took terms that were being used in Vedic times and in Upanishadic cultures, and he flipped the meaning of them. I don't know if it's a word, but I'm going to call it ironizing. Okay? He ironized words. So he took a word like karma, which meant sacrificial rituals that were actions that would guarantee you a better reincarnation, and he temporalized it. So he said, well, actually, your actions do make a difference, but they make a difference now. Okay. So he pulled the word karma out of a cosmological framework. And I also want to say, although it would be a tangent, which I'm going to take for five seconds, that the Buddha was not the only person doing this. Uh, this seemed to be the theme in world history at that time, which scholars call the Axial Age, which is when major teachers, Rabbi Hillel, Lao Tzu, the Buddha, Tanjali comes at the end of it, were taking cosmology, big metaphysical systems, and making them individual. And what's also interesting about those major teachers in world religion is that none of them were trying to create a religion. They were trying to create a new kind of culture, a new kind of person. None of them interested in religion. In fact, all of them critical of the religion of their time. So, this is very important because in the yoga community, a lot of people use terms, but they use them in a way that are mixed up. So, for example, sometimes people use the Bhagavad Gita understanding of the word karma, but it's not necessarily how it's used in the Yoga Sutra, which is influenced by how the Buddha uses the term karma. You understand? So, for the Buddha... Karma is not something that happens to you. Like, you know, um, people say, oh, that's your karma, man. 
Uh, for the Buddha, karma is the relationship between your actions and the consequence of your actions. And that there are no actions that happen without a consequence. And some consequences are immediate. And some consequences, like parenting, are delayed. <laughs> you don't know what you're going to get. <laughs> um, so, oh, let me just add one other, just another idea here too, which is that the Buddha also took lots of other terms and played with them. So, for example, people who started entering the path with the Buddha, he called them Brahmins. Or he called them Arya. Like, you know the term, the Four Noble Truths, Arya, Satcha? So, the term Arya refers to nobility. But for the Buddha, you are Arya, you are noble, if your, your, your lifestyle is one that's dedicated to a path of awakening. In other words, you're not noble by what you're born into. You're noble by what you do. Your karma makes you noble. Your actions make you Arya, make you noble. Right? So he played with these terms. Another thing he played with a lot was fire. Right? So, like I was saying, you know, there would be these sacrificial fires going on. And the Buddha's idea was, actually, those fires, they're in you. And the three fires are greed, anger, and confusion, or delusion. And those fires actually exist inside you. Right? So he was taking these basic cultural themes, kind of like now we use the term queer. Do you have that term here? <laughs> Yes, no, I don't know. Yes. Right. And so you take a term and you make it ironic to point out a, a, a way that a society can change the way it sees a group of people or a practice or a teaching. So I've been thinking for myself, how can I do this more? You know, like, so I've been replacing words like, instead of using the word mindfulness lately, I've been calling it hacking. <laughs> Because, I, because I, actually, that's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness practice is a practice of actually hacking into the momentum of our minds and our culture. So this is something we can all have some freedom to do, is to, to play around with these terms we inherit so that their meaning is more immediate. Yeah. Um, so all this was just to talk about karma. Um, but it's sometimes nice to pepper it with a little history, because I think most of us don't know the history, and, and the context is very, very important, because these teachings are all context-dependent. Mm -hmm. So, the term karma literally means that when you take an action, there is an effect. If you have a garden and you plant cucumber, you're going to get cucumber. If you plant squash, you're going to get squash. You never plant squash and get an eggplant. 
Okay. Unless Monsanto is around. <laughs> then you just get soya bean. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you plant, you end up with soy or corn. <laughs> Only one generation. What's that? But only one generation. Only one generation, yeah, exactly. Then you've got to pay the royalties. Yeah. <laughs> and you're screwed. Yeah. Um, where was I? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, if you want to plant a culture of kindness, then your actions have to be rooted not just in the philosophy, oh, I want kindness, but in your whole body. We don't really need so many yoga teachers. What we need is people who are learning the practice of yoga, and then they're sharing it through the actions of their body and their speech. So that they're planting in the culture the values of this system. You know? We don't necessarily need to teach everyone how to hold their ankles in backbending. Although that's fun. But there's something deeper that we can offer the culture. And this is what karma is about. That your actions make a difference. Every teenager needs to hear that lesson. You see, when we were young, we were learning, and I'm talking about we as like a generation, we were learning about how the world is basically a disaster, and we better start recycling. And, and then we learned about iPhones and cool things like that. But for the generation that's younger than 20 years old, um, we were talking about this yesterday, mm -hmm. for a generation that's younger than 20 years old, you can't sit in front of them and tell them how screwed up things are. Because they've been hearing that since they were born. They don't listen to that message. Mm -hmm. They know. And what they're interested in is how they can make a difference. That's what they're interested in. Not climate science statistics. That's for our generation. The younger generation, they want to know how to make change, and they're passionate about it, actually. And the most important teaching for them is karma. That what you do makes a difference. Whether that's on a meta stage, or that's just in how you move your body, how you eat, how you speak, how you listen, how you trust yourself, or not. So in a way, renunciation in our contemporary society is a renunciation that's geared to letting go of everything that doesn't matter. And having enough trust to get clear on what does matter, combined with a strong emphasis on... I'm glad everyone's writing this down. <laughs> I'm not listening, but I'm going to write it. <laughs> on the fact that your actions make a difference. They really make a difference. If you lie in bed all day, smoking pot, paint your room black, and listen to Lady Gaga, <laughs> then that's the difference you're making. 
the only thing that exists, the only thing that exists is relationship. It's the core teaching of the Yoga Sutra, core teaching of the Buddha, is that everything is empty. Except of relationship. That everything is empty of a substantial core because all you have is relationship. And everything is so interrelated that when you make an action that has in it the, the values of nonviolence, honesty, not stealing, generosity, non-greed, then those actions actually start to change your body, your physiology, your neurology, um, your brain, your family, your city. 80% of the world's population in this decade will be living in cities. So we need to look at how our practice influences the city, influences our society, in ways that we've never had to look at before. So when we do this practice in here, and it seems, oh, I'm doing this formal practice of bowing and all these things, actually, that is changing our culture. Because it's changing your operating system. And one thing we know about operating systems is that they can be redesigned. And so that's what we're doing. So this is all a pep talk. If I was in Texas, I would be dressed like a cheerleader. <laughs> Maybe that will be the future of the Dharma, is that all the teachers will dress, not in these kind of robes, but will have little skirts with a, um, what are those skirts called that have like the, they're like an accordion? I don't know. German, it's tutu. A tutu? Yeah, and we can do like sun. <laughs> Give me an O. <laughs> Give me an Om. Give me an Om. <laughs> so the reason why I thought that we could study this text uh, together is because of this focus on really looking at how the core of our practice is relational life. Because that's all you have. That's all you are. You think you're this unique uh, person, but actually your body is entirely relationship. Your mind is entirely relationship. And so that's where we have to look the quality of our relationships. And as we talked about yesterday, you can't just live from honeymoon to honeymoon to honeymoon. Well, you can, actually. That is a lot of suffering. <laughs> um, 
So let's, whenever you hear the word karma, let's translate it as creativity within relationship. And what I mean by creativity is exactly the same as how we think about creativity in the arts. That creativity is what you're going to do with what you've got. Like, when you travel a lot, like I do, and you go home, you get, off, you get out of the airplane, you get out of the airport, you go home, you open your fridge, <laughs> and you have, like, butter, <laughs> almond milk, pesto, a carrot, <laughs> and soy sauce. And you have to make a meal with it. So this is how we live every day. Is you have some ingredients, and how do you make a meal with it? Like here we are in this community right now. These are the ingredients. So how do we make something with it? And then, tomorrow, the ingredients change. And the next day, the ingredients change. So karma is how you respond to the ingredients and then how you create something with those ingredients. So the triangle pose, trikonasana, the ingredients in the triangle pose change every time you practice it. Especially in your 40s, (laughs) 50s, 60s. Every time it's really different. So how do you respond to those changes and work with them? This is called karma. So that there's no separation between your practice and your ethics. They cannot be separated. Because our practice is always in the field of karma. In a matrix. And the Buddha made this incredible move of not letting his students drop out. And instead, trying to create a different kind of culture. So, how can we do that? How can we create a different kind of culture by putting our practice at the center of our life? Right at the center of your life is your practice. And everything else comes out of that. As opposed to, oh, my practice is this thing that I do, like, whenever I can, I'm so busy. So your decisions about your livelihood, about your relationships, about how you spend your money, about how you earn your money, about how you eat, like, all of these Uh, um, basic needs uh are all part of your practice. So that when you bow, you start to feel like you're bowing to your life. You know, um, 
a year and a half ago, I was in Japan. And uh, uh, I went on a long hike and, uh, through these mountains. And um, I went to see some Shinto temples. And I got to one temple, I really had to pee. And so um, I couldn't find the bathroom anymore. So finally I said, is there a bathroom somewhere? And someone pointed downstairs. So I went downstairs. I walked down these stone steps, which are going down into the mountain. They're very, very deep. And it was so dark. And then when I got down there, there were thousands of candles lit. Thousands. I mean, more than a thousand. And uh, it was where they kept all the small porcelain urns where everyone in the neighborhoods around that mountain had been cremated And then their ashes had been put into those urns. And they sat there in this basement. I never found the bathroom, but they sat there in this basement. (laughs) And it was all lit up by candlelight. And there was a caretaker whose job, he was a priest, a Shinto priest. And his job was just to keep this lit. And at the end of the hall, there was an altar. And so uh, I would always, whenever I see an altar, you go, you bow, you light some incense, put the incense in the ash. And uh, Buddhist altars, especially Shinto altars, um, they usually have some textile hanging in the way so that you can't see the face of the deity, so that you have to bow down really low. And then when you look up, then you can see. (laughs) So you've made yourself smaller. So I was in this basement, it was really dark, and there was this altar, so I light the incense, I bow down, and then I look up, and there was a mirror, (laughs) a round mirror, so that when you bow and you look up, it's you. I just cried. (laughs) It was so beautiful. You go through this whole ritual of coming into this special space, and what are you bowing down to? Your own life. It's the punchline of this practice. At the end of the day, even though everybody wants to look like Sarah Powers, it's just you. You're going to grow into your life. I really want to look like Rodney Yee. Waxing my chest, (laughs) ponytail, everything. I just can't get out of this body. Um, So when you bow, you're bowing to this life. This earth, yourself. And that's the heart of religion. Part of this religious practice that we're doing is to have union with your life. These conditions, not something that's separate from this. So let's practice that way. So thank you. That's all I have to say. Everybody can go home now. I'll see you next year. Um, There were some hands up. Yeah, and what do you consider dropping out in now?
Um, did you say dropping out? Mm. Yes. What do I consider dropping out? Hundreds of boys in this neighborhood with black coats and no hair, stoned, standing at the bank machine. To me, that makes me sad. All these young men, these are the young men. <laughs> um, uh, too many people with good educations and amazing minds becoming yoga teachers and not being able to make a living. And so not influencing the culture in a way that I think they should. Uh, this, I don't know if this happens in Copenhagen. But I see this so much in North America. All these like great people who are running around teaching yoga classes and are burnt out. They don't practice themselves anymore because they're all fried. To me, there's some dropping out in that. You know, I have a student and he said, I really want to be your student. And I said, okay. Uh, he said, so I want to leave my job. He's an architect. And I said, you can keep studying with me as long as you stay uh, working as an architect. Another young woman said, I really want to be your student. I said, okay. Uh, as long as you go back to university. Because <laughs> you can really do something to change our culture for the better. Um, so anything where we're not using our treasures... You all know it. You all know when you've like, walked away from something. Sometimes we need to do that. Uh, sometimes there's a time to leave and be on retreat. But my interest is not retreating. My favorite, uh, one of my favorite lines about practice is... Um, the small retreat is to go up to the forests and practice with the rivers. The big retreat is to disappear in the capital. Small retreat is to go practice with the forests. We all need to do that retreat. <laughs> we all know that. But the deeper retreat is to go into the capital and be anonymous and, and roll up your sleeves. I call it blue-collar Buddhism. It's like you roll up your sleeves and you go, you go to work. Find a craft. Maybe one person's craft is writing poetry. Another person is pottery. Another person is law. Somebody else's, you know, um, I don't know, breastfeeding. Do you have breastfeeding in Copenhagen? <laughs> And then, and what, how you serve, uh, it changes. It's not one thing, it changes. Maybe you've been doing something for 10 years, and I think, okay, now I can, I can serve in a different way now. That's how I've served. I've run a center in Toronto for almost 10 years, eight and a half years. Now I feel like, oh, I'm going to do something else. So I said to everybody, okay, I'm leaving. 
And you know, now people are freaking out. But my closer students are all like, yeah, of course. Because <laughs> I had this thought, you know, why do we always make a change when there's a crisis? Why don't we make changes when everything's going really well? I have a friend, Stephen Batchelor, and he, when, when he was in Toronto many years ago, not many years ago, five years ago, he said, you, you guys should put an expiry date on your community. So we had this idea of actually putting on the website like a countdown. <laughs> you just say, like, just make it 10 years and just start counting down. And I said, this will be terrible for our donations. <laughs> and his idea was, you know, every community goes bad. Right? Something happens. So he says, so why not just, just... So I thought, we're ahead of the game. No one stole any money. There's been no sex scandal. <laughs> so let's just, let's, like, just quit while we're ahead. <laughs> so anyways, there's a long answer to dropping out. Actually, the Buddha needed the dropouts also to develop his philosophy. And I think sometimes um, the, 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 like the innovations came from anti-structure, yes. like the women teaching yes. also could yes. be important, so maybe there's also time for dropping out sometimes. Yes. Oh. Yes, but instead of idealizing it as dropping out, let's talk about it as dropping in. So we're like leaving the momentum of the culture, right? You know that wheel that you run around in? But instead of dropping, thinking about it as dropping out, we're thinking, oh, we're actually dropping in. As opposed, because when I hear dropping out in a kind of 1960s way, I think of uh, leaving something without the energy of starting something new. So. It's like double helix DNA. You know, you have to have the part that's leaving, but also at the same time you have to have the part that's working towards something new. They both have to work together. Yes? Um. You're only allowed to ask questions today if you're related. <laughs> Keep it in the family. You know. But uh, then, um, what responsibility, or if you have responsibility as like yoga communities or yoga teachers, um, or do we have a responsibility to be outgoing to find the drop ins or drop outs or? Uh, what should the synergy be like between the people who are really like drop out, like can't go to yoga schools because they can't afford it and, and uh, can't find introductions because they, maybe they can't read or maybe they don't have access to a uh -huh. computer? And yeah, well, I can't answer that. That, that, yeah. that is totally dependent on the needs of your community. And that's what you serve. And everyone's community has different needs. So you need to be in touch with the needs of your community. Like, um, for example, in Toronto, uh, one of my students has a center 
And so she started playing around with how you can run a center. So the first thing she did is she started making these cards. One side says yes, and one side says no thanks. And you put them beside your yoga mat. So when you come into the room to practice, yes means yes, I'm open for adjustments. And no thanks means no thanks, not today. I don't want anyone to touch me. And then all these new people felt safe to come in that space because there's people with trauma or injuries who never felt safe in the yoga space. And it was just a simple thing with the card. So it didn't offend anyone who was already practicing. Maybe we should all do this. You could do it with a deck of cards. You know, if the face is up, it means yes. If it's down, it means no, no thanks. And then it gives, pr- and some people, they'll change it during the class. So they'll come in with no thanks, and then they'll start to feel from this teacher. Like, I don't ever go to classes because I don't want anyone to touch me. Right? But, but then maybe after a while, you might feel, oh, this is safe. And then you turn the card up. Or she has her change rooms. She has three change rooms. Men, women, and just a third change room. So now there's this whole transgender population coming to her yoga class because they have a place where they feel comfortable to change. Uh And she has like brown yoga, queer yoga, (laughs) brown queer yoga. (laughs) All these classes. And, and, And the studio is packed. And, she, and they're inventing it as they go along. Right? They're asking their community what, what are their needs. So I love seeing this kind of thing. It's really fascinating. So that's an example in the yoga community of like a different way of doing it, a different model. Look how many people in our society are getting old. We should be teaching them, too. <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many ways that this can come along. So, uh, a couple other comments or questions, then we'll have a break, and then we'll go back to the Yeah, I have... It's, it's kind of a weird question, but you said everything... The weirder, is, the better. The weirder, the better. <laughs> you said everything is a relationship. Mm-hmm. What is a relationship? Everything. so relationship is what's not relationship what's not relationship so you can meditate on that (laughs) (laughs) I've said a lot What, what 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 comes up for you yeah. It all sounds like now, when, <clears throat> when being here and thinking about it, it all sounds like really sense and clear. Yeah, I, I have a mission for like this world and it's not about me, but it's about, uh, yeah, I have to go out there and be good and do good things. Mm-hmm. But then when I get home, like after a week or something, it, it kind of starts to fade and it might be difficult to... Find it again with the meditation when you start feeling again like that uh, everyday life is just too difficult and it's easier to drop out of trying to make the change. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, community. Mm -hmm. 
Like, you, it's, it's so hard to practice without communities, without good mm -hmm. teachers, without good teachings. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. So, and if you can't find community, just make one. No one's stopping you. Because Eric? I feel like uh, yeah. many friends have been like that they would like to, but they don't know where. Mm. And I don't know, would it be like stupid to like gather around with friends and meditate? Or? Sounds really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> would you really do that? That's crazy. We could all dress like Smurfs. <laughs> True. You could start the Smurf Sangha. Yeah, blue yoga. Yeah, yeah. you could live in little mushrooms. <laughs> um, it doesn't take much to start Sangha. Sangha is just one other person. One other person. The traditional definition of Sangha was having faith in one other person's practice. So, like, you pick someone where you see, oh, it's working in their life. So that's going to keep me going. That's community. So, um, make it up. It's okay. I give you permission. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and invent it as you go along. And then what will happen is you'll reach a stage where you realize, I really need more training. Mm -hmm. And then that will motivate you to, to study more, and it will keep your practice going. Good luck. <laughs> you know how it goes. You have to find the mushrooms. So. <laughs> talked about this in a, some years ago also, but I just find it sometimes difficult to be this whole, like, be open, be generous, be friendly, etc., etc., and then just, and also keeping your own limits, like mm. not being overwhelmed of, yeah. of people or, yeah, um, yeah. Mm. just not taking in too much, because then you also lose your practice or yeah. the way of doing it. So I, I mm -hmm. just think that's really a challenge also when you're not having the Sanka or yeah. Think, yeah, anyone to support you in that process. Yeah. yeah. That's a challenge. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. That's a ratio that I'm always trying to figure out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but nowadays it's not so hard to find good teachers. And um, it's not so hard to study. Yeah. And I think I said this, I don't know if I said it yesterday or the other day, that I know, I don't know, more than half of the room, I think. And you have enough technique in your practice that just work with that. You don't need, like, another workshop. Except when I come. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, work with, just work with it. For me, I use the internet to stay in touch with people. You know, podcasts and online courses and things. Cause then everybody gets, gets to benefit from that. 
Um, should we take a little break? And then we'll study the... I don't, we, we didn't get very far yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs>